Welcome to the Sharing Power Podcast, a production of Flux Theater Ensemble, where we explore what it means to lead together. We'll introduce our hosts. I'm Lori, she, her pronouns. I am a black woman, chocolate skin with shoulder length locks. I'm wearing a pink shirt and I'm calling in from the land of the Homa and Choctaw, colonially known as Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My name is Jason Seng. I use they, them, and Ta pronouns. I am a Chinese-American non-binary person with long, curly, shoulder-length hair. And I'm wearing a fuzzy pastel white sweatshirt. And I'm calling in from the Piscataway and Manahonic lands, colonially known as Potomac, Maryland. And I'm Corinna Schulenberg. I use she, her pronouns. I am a middle-aged white trans woman with long, strawberry, blondish, brownish hair, wearing glasses. My background is blurred because I'm over at a friend's, and I'm joining you from the lands of the Muncie, Lenape, and Canarsie in what is colonially known as Queens. So we are Flux Theater Ensemble. And so Flux is led by our creative partnership. As creative partners, or CPs, we practice shared leadership through consensus-based decision-making, collectively held resources and labor, and artistic collaboration. There are no fixed executive or artistic director positions. Instead, CPs move in and out of leadership roles depending on the project, with other CPs consenting to those temporary roles. In this way, the power of leadership is not fixed and exploitative, but rather relational and abundant, a resource that we all contribute to and draw from. All major decisions are made through a voting process within the creative partnership. The core values that we hold dear are joy, collective care, consent and agency, rigor and release, and an aesthetic of liberation. You can learn more about Flux at fluxtheater.org. That's theater with an R-E. So here at Flux, we know we are not alone in practicing distributed leadership and consent-based processes. And yet we found that there aren't many places to talk about the actual practice. That's why we're launching Sharing Power so that we can learn with others who share our values and hopefully inspire others to adapt these practices into their own contexts. So how are we going to do that? We want to model shared power in these conversations as well. And that's why we've asked our guests to bring at least two people to the podcast. And it's why we're bringing some attention to how we're holding the space. Every podcast will play one of three roles, lead facilitator, lead responder, and lead listener. The lead facilitator will focus on holding the space, ask the main questions we always ask, and tend to our dear relation time to make sure we stay on track. The lead responder will focus on asking follow-up questions and on making connections with Flux's own work. The lead listener will focus on deep listening for emergent things and questions at the edge of our conversation. They'll also be tending to our dynamics to make sure we're living up to our values. We're going to switch up these roles every time, and we're going to hold these roles lightly. So today, I'll be your lead facilitator. Jason will be the lead responder, and Corinna will be our lead listener. And that brings us to our guests. We have with us two members of the Park Slope Food Co-op. 
For those who don't know, the Park Slope Food Co-op is a member-owned and operated food store, an alternative to commercial profit-oriented business. As members, they contribute labor, working together to build trust through cooperation and teamwork, and it enables the co-op to keep prices as low as possible within the context of their values and principles. So that is our short short version of introduction to the Park Slope Food Co-op. I just wonder, we have with our guests, did we miss anything? Joe and Imani, would you love to add to that or say a little more about who the Park Slope Co-op is? Yes, Joe, go for it. Well, the, the Park Slope Food Co-op has currently 15,400 members and we're projecting sales this year of over 53 million. So the interesting thing about the co-op is that how much it resonates with people in Brooklyn. So during COVID, we stopped admitting new members and we shrank from 17,100 to about 11,750 between like about, in less than two years. We shrank that much because of COVID and we wouldn't let anybody join during that time because we were having trouble managing. But then when we decided to let people in again, We've quickly grown since December of 2021. It's been a little over a year now. We've grown back from a little less than 12,000 to almost 15,500. So I'm very happy that, you know, that the people of Brooklyn are still interested in joining the co-op and being part of this community, a community of cooperation where we're fortunate to be a grocery cooperative, where it's pretty easy to build a path where people could actually participate in the grocery store that they own and help help run it. And that brings a certain connection among people. And that connection is incredibly important in any organization. The more an organization could connect with its members, and in this case, its member owners, if you could build that connection, then you could build strength. And so it's important for good organizations to be strong and to persist into the future for generations to come. So that that's kind of like how I see the co-op as something that continues to be successful. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of them. Absolutely. Thank you for that added context to the, the actual scope of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Of those 15,400 members, we've got two with us today, and I would love for you all to introduce yourselves to our listeners. I'd love it if you'd give us your name, your pronouns, a little bit of a, a visual description of what, what you look like, and we'll go from there. Okay, my name is Imani Karin, and my pronouns are she and her. I am a tall African-American woman. Brown skin, beautiful. <laughs> yes, you are. And with Imani, we have? My name is Joe Holtz, and I, he, him, and I'm, let me see, I'm, I'm a white male. I've got a beard and a mustache, and I, I don't have a lot of hair left, and <laughs> I'm getting old. Mm, that's very real. Thank you. Thank you for being <laughs> with us, both of you. For those who know us at Flux, any gathering that we have, be it a meeting or, you know, a retreat or various things, we always do what we call a check-in, where we have everyone check-in with either a question or a prompt. And we have a prompt for today. And that prompt is, what is bringing you joy right now? 
And that's for all of us here. So that's how we like to start off our conversation. So I'll I'll go, Joe, what's bringing you, what's bringing you joy right now? Okay, what's bringing me joy right now is the fact that when I walk down the street, I'm not only seeing flowering trees, but I'm also seeing little baby leaves coming. And so it's really exhilarating. Yet again, to be exhilarated by spring, it doesn't get old. And I'm just that I'm definitely having joy around that. And just prior to getting on Zoom with all of you, I was I, I met with four pe- four other people from the National Cooperative Grocers Association, which our co-op, the Paxo Food Co-op, is part of a cooperative of co-ops, a nationwide cooperative that has about 150 co-ops that belong to it. And we help each other. And we had a, a phone call today with four four general managers of our co-op and three others and, and someone from the organization. And we were talking about various ways, you know, things that we that are challenging. And but it gave me great joy to see these folks and to share support and get support and share support. And so that was a, a really great thing. And I'm really glad that our co-op is part of a co-op. Yes, that's amazing. Imani, what's bringing you joy right now? Well, of course, spring, as Joe said, I love looking at those little little baby leaves coming out of the trees. It's just, it just fills me with joy. Uh, what I was going to also say is that I'm in the process of learning something new. And I have been trying to learn this for the past couple of years, actually, when COVID started, they shut my industry down. So I had to find something else. So I'm in the process of learning how to trade different indices and different assets, Forex, gold, silver, Bitcoin, all kinds of things like that. And it has brought me to wanting to, of learning also about economies of different countries and So it's like all of this is coming together in this process of learning this new thing that I never thought I would have any interest in, nor did I think I could learn it. And I'm getting a handle of it. And that is, it's almost like an obsession right now. And it's bringing me a great deal of joy, although it's also very challenging as well. Oh, I love to hear that. Even just that notion of, I didn't think I could learn it. And here I am learning it and not only learning it, getting obsessed with it. I love yeah, that. <laughs> I, I know. I didn't even think I wanted to learn anything about the economy. You know, I would turn that off immediately. And now I'm saying, oh, now I understand what's happening. Now I understand what's going on with the banks. Now, you know, like, wow. So That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Jason, what's bringing you joy right now? Um, I so I'm in Washington DC and I recently purchased I went to a bookstore called Politics and Prose and I picked up a poetry book by Ocean Vuong and that has just been feeding my soul. It's been breaking my heart as well, but it's 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 a good heartache. Oh, I love that. And what about you, Corinna? Well, we're visiting friends out in Connecticut. And so my daughter, who is eight, was hiking today. And the thing about my daughter is that she, if she sees a big stone, like a boulder, she absolutely has to climb it. And she will not move forward until we have climbed it. 
<laughs> and so I love it because again, it's like, a, it's a little bit of what we'll be talking about later with like consent and agency. Like everybody else kind of wanted us to keep hiking, but she was like, listen, my soul needs us to stop <laughs> so that I can climb this giant boulder. And we did. And the view from top was beautiful. And then we continued together. And that's bringing me a lot of joy. I love that. I love that. You know what's bringing me joy right now? I'm I'm directing a show where the the lead character, the titular character actually, plays a couple of songs on the piano in the show and the actress playing that role doesn't play the piano. And so I've had to teach her how to play the piano, which has re-inspired a love that I had for playing the piano as a child, you know, growing up my parents put me into piano lessons and it was always like a chore in my mind. And here I am all these years later, having an opportunity to teach someone else on something that I haven't done myself in years. And it, it was like, I actually like this. Am I about to get back in piano lessons and, and continue to learn something that I knew from before? And I think the answer is yes. So it is bringing me much joy to like sit at a piano and make music and sing. Wow. Yeah. Lovely. That's great. That's great. Indeed. So let's, let's get into it. You've spoken a little bit about, you know, the scope of the Park Slope Food Co-op. And I'm, I'm curious about the origin story for the collective. How did you all come to the idea of consent-based decision-making and distributed leadership within, within the co-op? Yes, Joe. Okay, so I was part of the group of about 10 people who started working on the co-op in 1972 and it opened in February 73. So I'm one of the, I'm one of the founders. And to understand the co-op and how it got to where it is, it, it is important to understand the origins and where it came from and what were some of the sensibilities and thought processes that were going on. And what was going on when the food co-op movement in the United States, the what was what we could then call the new wave of food co-ops, because there were co-ops that started in the 1930s, and that was called the old wave, and we were called the new wave. And there were all these things happening in America. So I'm going to read you a little list here that I made up. The, the Vietnam War, the anti-Vietnam War movement was going on. The civil rights movement was going on. The women's rights movement was going on. The gay rights movement the environmental movement. Now, some of these movements have been going on for a long time, but some of them had only been going on for a brief number of years, like Earth Day. The first Earth Day was in 1970, for example. And so there, there, was, there was the people who, the young people, and I was young then, we, we, we really looked at what was going on with a lot of, we were very critical of, of what we saw was going on. We were critical and it made us not trust. But we were also very critical of hierarchy. We became critical of hierarchy and we also became very suspicious of, and it wasn't like we were conspiracy theorists. We were suspicious of the food supply and whether it was actually safe and whether the stuff that we were being encouraged to eat was good for us or not. And you might remember around 1969 or 1970, there was a book, Diet for a Small Planet, which talked about eating lower on the food chain. And it talked about how pesticides concentrate in meat and you should have eat less meat to eat fewer pesticides, you know. And so anyway, there was kind of distrust of the food supply. And so out of that, out of, out of that, but oh, there was a desire to eat better. And eating better 
costs more. Eating healthier foods costs more. And so, and then you look at the criticism of the society among those people who were involved in these movements, not say everybody in every movement, but there was a criticism that our society was a society where the, the desire for individual success exceeded all, all, other, all other considerations. In other words, community success, no, that was not really on the table. But, but people like myself and many other people rejected that. And we thought having community success was important. And we thought the way to do that was cooperation. And we thought cooperation meant working together. And so we and the co-op movement in general back then were the idea that cooperation, oh, we're going to work together in this co-op. What, what happened, unbeknownst to the Park Slope Food Co-op, is that a lot of co-ops across the country started going away from that concept just around the time that we were really forming in Brooklyn. And we didn't know that. And we didn't want to do anything like get away from. We wanted everybody to cooperate. And we thought if you weren't going to cooperate, then don't be a member of the co-op. And so we, we just said, okay, we're going to, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have these meetings every every first every week and then every month and and we're still meeting every month and we try to make decisions at those meetings and we try to be inclusive and try to give everybody a path towards being involved in the decision making whether it be by coming to meetings or by writing something in our newsletter which is run by members and so we try to be inclusive and. And, and open in every single aspect that we can be. And, and, and there are many people who are watching that, including me, you know, watching that to not let us backslide away from that. And so I'm not saying that no backsliding has happened. I'm just saying there are people watching and trying to make sure it doesn't happen. And, you know, and we've mainly been successful. And so, I think that feeds into the conversation of consent and agency. And it, it does it, I think we need to talk about it, how it does it in a macro way for the whole co-op and kind of in a micro way for the people who work for the co-op and what, and what our responsibilities are to democracy, actually. I, I, think, I, think, I, think that, I think when people don't realize that they're, and, and by the way, the international principles of cooperation. There were these seven, there were these, there's a statement of co-op identity that has been adopted by the International Cooperative Alliance. And, and, and there, are, there are these couple of paragraphs in the beginning and then these seven principles. And, and one of the principles is to be a democratic organization. So the question is, how do you do that? And what does it mean in a democracy? How do you protect the democracy? You know, and how do you respect it? And what happens if you don't? Mm. You know, I, I think those are all key, key things to talk about. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I thank you for lobbying up this next question so beautifully for us. Like, if we could get a little granular about how power works differently within the co-op, as opposed to like, a, let's say, a commercial grocery store that we might know by name across the nation, you know, what, what are the differences in how power is either shared or distributed throughout the co-op? 
Well, I'm going to kick this over to Imani because see, Imani's on the board of directors, and and if you read the if you read the New York State Cooperative Corporation Law, and if you read the bylaws of the Parks of Food Corp, the the board of directors is the ultimate power, and and our our board of directors wields their power in a very in a very unique in a very unique and responsible way and trusting trusting way, you know. So I'll let Imani take it. Oh, I'm so excited to hear about this. <laughs> well, we had to have a board, and Joe could tell you more than that, more about that, but for legal reasons. But we mm. still wanted to maintain the form of governance that we started, our town hall style of governance. And one of the things that really excited me about the co-op, you know, like after a year of membership or so, I went to my first meeting. And I learned there that that was actually the decision-making body of the co-op. And, and, you know, like it shocked me and fascinated me that all I have to do to have my voice heard is to go to the meeting. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, I had been in lots of different movements, as Joe said, you know, and thank you for that history, Joe. But like I was coming up in the women's movement and the gay rights movement and, you know, you know, like fighting, trying to fight for my rights, you know, like, I don't know if you saw my bio, but, you know, like I, you know, was one of the first women to go into the factories, you know, yes. when they opened up to women in 1978, 1979, yes. you know, so those factories were, you know, mostly all, they were all male and mostly all white. And so it was very, very challenging as a woman, especially as a woman of color to go in at that time, you know, so to realize that I don't have to fight to have my voice heard at the co-op, I can just come to the meeting, you know, I, I got involved with that immediately. That's one of the big differences. And I think it's hard for people to understand, you know, because everybody else is so used to having to fight for what they want, fight for their rights. And, and in the co-op, it was just given to us. But when I went to that first meeting, you know, unlike shopping in the co-op itself, I saw lots of people that looked like me, you know, had families like mine, you know, lots of diversity. When I went to the meeting, I didn't see that. You know, so as a person of color, you know, like I, I thought Gandhi had said, I realized later he didn't actually say this, but I thought he did for a long time. Be the change that you want to see. He said mm. something like that, but it was more involved, but it comes down to that. And so I said, well, if you want more people of color to be in the meetings, then you should get involved. And, and and so that's why I got involved on the chair committee. If they see me, maybe other people that look like me would feel welcome in this thing and realize that this was something different. And I think for a long time, you know, those of us that, that, that I think it's taking agency. To me, I hear agency a little bit like being responsible, taking ownership, personal, ownership of what it is instead of thinking the co-op they should do this the co-op they should do this i realize it's the co-op i should do this i should say something i should do something it's about me and 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 
and, and talking to others and, and sharing ideas and making all of our voices heard. Eventually, that's why I got onto the board because I wanted to protect that. And one of the things we could get into later is, is what Joe brought up about democracy. And this last couple of years was one of the scariest times for me being on the board and being in the co-op because so much changed with our society. And I think, you know, it, democracy in general during COVID was greatly challenged and many of our rights were taken away. And I thought the same thing could happen in, in our co-op. And, you know, like some people get onto into certain positions because they want the power like you see in boards on TV, you know, like you want to be in control, you want to say how things should go, and you think you're the one, and not the 17,000 of us are the one, you know, that, that, that should say. So it was scary, because we don't, the board doesn't meet outside of our general meeting. And during COVID, the board had to meet, we couldn't, we didn't have a meeting with our, our membership. And so that was a time that I personally thought that that whole position of power could change. It mm. could change from the membership having the power mm. to the board having the power. And for me, it was a it was a struggle. It was like one of the hardest fights to maintain like it's we like that our role as a board has to be to make sure that the membership has a voice. And to make sure that we get this meeting back on track and that we get a way for the membership's voice to be heard in some of all of these things that had to change because of what we were dealing with. So, and I, I think we did very well with getting through it, but it was very, it was very difficult. Oh, that's amazing. I, I actually have never heard of that. The board cannot meet unless it is in the presence of the general public. That's that's really quite beautiful. Jason. Yeah, I just I also want to echo that. I, you know, I serve on the board of of, of a few nonprofit organizations. And to hear that kind of ethos of, you know, like the, the board serves the members rather than the members, you know act at the will of the board. That's such a radical inversion of what we so often see in kind of nonprofit organizations. I'm really curious, Amani, you were talking a little bit about, you know, how the the, the board at the Park Slope Food Co-op, you know, operates, you know, as a partner and integrated with, with the, the membership at large. I know that one of the common kind of critiques of you know, cooperatives or consent-based distributed leadership is that decisions get muddled down in this process of democracy or consent, or, you know, they're, they're, it just becomes too burdensome to get everybody to agree on a course of action. And so I'm curious about how how you all manage such a large, diverse, I imagine opinionated group of people, but to do so in ways that meet the the timely demands of running such a complicated operation. I'm not okay, I'll, I'll answer what I what I hear, what I what the part that I know to answer. and and I would say that those decisions do get muddled down. you know, like one of the one of the things that, um, during that period of COVID was we were we were struggling 
financially, you know, and, and weren't sure that the co-op was going to be able to, to last through that period. And one of the first decisions that the general coordinators wanted the board to make was to raise the prices, you know, like by just 4%. And, you know, like it was my position, how could we do that? You know, like we have a lot of members in a lot of different, you know, you know, make a lot of in the whole spectrum of society, those that are on welfare, you know, that are struggling to, to, you know, even, even have food for their families. And those, you know, we're in Park Slope, people that are probably making, well, I know that there are people making millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, like perhaps for, for, for me, I'm a real estate broker. I could afford 4%, but I can't, I didn't want us to be speaking for the 17,000 members. And I, I was really thinking about those people that couldn't afford it and that we couldn't just so easily say, oh yeah, the seven of us, you know, board members couldn't say, yeah, let's just raise it. One, that's not our job to be coming up with what the membership should do. So I kept it to our job is to make sure that the membership has a vote. We had to figure out Zooms and things like that, but I was I was adamant, and some of the other board members, and it it was a it was a tough discussion and a tough decision. And I did not have consent. I didn't wasn't giving consent to say let's raise the prices, but we all did come together and decide not to do that. Now I don't know I don't know if that was the best thing to do because as when we got to have our vote, when the membership came together and finally voted, then they did vote to raise the, the price by the 4%, you know, and that was months and months, maybe even a year later, you know, but still, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's more about really people understanding leadership and understanding consent and agency themselves. We still only had a small portion of that 17,000 membership in the meeting that make that decision. So, but that that's a little bit about, you know, what we were going through and how I'm answering your question. Yeah, that's very, thank you so much. That was a very powerful answer. And it reminds me of, you know, a saying that I've often heard about moving at the speed of trust, right? And sometimes I, I know that in, in 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 kind of capitalism, we're taught like, oh, you know, bigger, faster, you know, growth at 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 all, you know, at all cost. But I think what you're what I'm hearing from you is that there's actually value, tangible value, in slowing down to make the right decision. And that I think that's a lesson we can all learn. Yes. One of, one, one of my mentors in my with the trading says he doesn't care about going fast, you know, he wants to go far and going and going far, it might take longer to get there than going fast. Indeed, indeed, so, indeed. I had, yes. I had one more thing to say about what Jason said about trust. And, you know, like I, I've really gone on that in terms of trusting the membership. You know, some people will think, you know, like, oh, I have the, you know, like they come from, they, you know, some of our board members come from a different culture where they've been on 
traditional board and perhaps grand big companies. So they have a different concept like that, that, that we should be making these decisions for this members. But after 20 years, you know, 21 years of being, you know, like in our general meetings, I find that there's a lot of wisdom in the membership. And I really trust that the membership, you know, after hearing everything, will make the right decision. And, you know, from my standpoint, I have never seen the membership make the wrong decision. Mm. Mm. Power to the people, quite literally. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yes. I mean, you know, for our listeners, you know, in the conversation thus far, we've we've tossed around the words consent and agency a few times now. We've talked about this, but just to get a little precise about it, if you will, you know, Flux as a theater company works towards nine hierarchical collaboration within our company. We prioritize consent in all of our creative and administrative processes. And for us, that consent you know, lives within a spectrum from an enthusiastic yes to to an I won't stand in the way of this decision if, you know, if I disagree, right? And that that idea of consent is also set in a healthy relationship, we think, with agency, which is what we think of as each individual collaborator feeling fully empowered to take risks and make decisions and act on them, you know, with the consent of the collective. And so I wonder you know, how you see that relationship of consent and agency, does it work different? Do you find, do you find it working differently amongst the general, the general meetings versus the board versus members who don't attend any of this? And I ask as a member who has never been to a general meeting. So I am, I am, I am, I am, I'm in that number, Imani, of like, <laughs> I, I, I love the diversity of walking around when I'm at the co-op and then knowing that like, Huh, I wonder who is who who is showing up to the meetings. And so, like, how does consent agency differ amongst the tiers of involvement at the co-op? Joe. Well, I, I don't know what it's like to be, you know, a member, just a regular old member who doesn't who does their who does their share of the work, you know, does the at least the minimum required, which is all we ask, and you know, and treats people respectfully when they're there and all that. And uh, you know, that's the basic member expectations, you know, and I I hope, I could tell you what I hope that member is thinking. I hope the member is thinking is, gee, the COPA is working pretty well. I, I've got a pretty busy life and I'm not going to have time to go to the meeting, but that I do know that if things start to go wrong at the co-op, that I know that there is a meeting and that maybe I would go. And I know there's a newsletter and I've read it sometimes, or maybe I read it all the time. And I know that I could write to it and I could write about my problems. I also know that there's an office upstairs and I could go and I could probably find someone to talk to who will probably listen to me. And so I, I hope that most members who are not very involved also have some understanding of how they could be involved if they needed to be. And so, but that that's just a theory of mine. It's a hope. I don't really mm -hmm. know what's going on in everybody's head. And obviously there's a broad spectrum of what's going on in people's heads. And what I just described is what I hope is going on in most people's heads. And I, I don't really know, you know, to the extent that it is, but, but that's what I hope. And, 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 and I don't 
judge people who don't come to the meetings and don't write to the newsletter and don't, you know, I, 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 I don't judge them, you know, at all. I, I, I said, I think, well, that's a, a really good member. Mm. I, I assume the person's a really good member. I assume mm. they care. I care about the co-op and will, you know how, when you go to a supermarket sometimes and you're shopping and you, which I do when I'm on vacation away from New York city and I, I'll see a product that's not supposed to be where it is, you know, cause some, somebody left it there, you know, you don't see that very often in the co-op. You do see it, but you see it so, in, so infrequently because mm. there, there's a certain caring that comes about from from just being a member. And then, you know, the fact that most members treat the co-op with respect and care, you know, is another thing that brings me joy, by the way, <laughs> going back to joy. So, you know, so, and so for those folks, I don't know how much is the governance is thought of, you know, and, mm. and how, how much they're thinking about the fact that in a lot of ways, they're, they're consenting. They're consenting by not protesting or, or by not, or by not saying, no, this is the wrong way. I've got a better way, you know, but, but, you know, so, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. It, it's sort of like in a, you know, it's, it's really hard to know exactly, but, but I do feel like there's a lot of love for the co-op among the thousands, thousands and thousands of members. And that makes the co-op very strong and, and very strong that, that, and a lot of people feel connected, even if they mm -hmm. don't go to meetings. So, I, I love to hear that. And, I, and as a member who is exactly what you've just described, I haven't attended a meeting. I've never written to the newsletter. I do feel that if I showed up, my voice would be heard. And I know that if I go upstairs, someone will listen to me. Like I have gone up to that office and, you know, because I was on F-top, I'm an actor, I had an <laughs> irregular schedule. I was like, you can't keep me out of here, man. You know, <laughs> and 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 someone would listen. I never felt like I didn't have a right to be there. I never felt like I couldn't speak my truth, you know, which is which is revolutionary in and of itself. I saw, Imani, you had a hand. Oh, yes. I, I, I was, you know, like being, I'm on the chair committee, which is also which is a committee that leads the meetings, but we are not leaders other than leading the meeting. And, you know, in, in coming to the meeting, I think that a lot of people don't really understand what we are as a, as a co-op. They don't understand the, the, the governance. They don't understand, they don't understand that they are owners of the co-op. They don't understand that they are owners. And they don't understand the how to, you know, have something changed. You know, certain big things were changed just because somebody brought a brought a, a proposal to our meeting. You know, we used to get credit, you know, you could have two credits a year coming to the, you know, coming to the meeting, but only a certain number of people, you know, could get those credits. And then somebody brought in a, a, a proposal that says, well, we think that, you know, there shouldn't be a cap on membership. You know, that changed the meeting number that we had from like 100 or so people a month that would come to the meetings to, these were the in-person meetings, to having four to 500 people come to the meeting. And that was just a member that decided that they thought this shouldn't be a cap 
and that was and that was changed all kinds of things but the membership doesn't know that the power is in their hands and it's hard you know since that's not how it is in society you know they're coming in not really understanding that and understanding mm. that we what we are so like every time i'm running for for office or have to run for the board again it's just trying to explain that because they the questions that they ask tend to make me think you don't understand. They say, well, what are you going to do about this position? And what are you going to do about this thing or that thing? And what's your, it's not about my opinion. It's not about my opinion on these issues. It's your opinion. My place is just to kind of ratify and give that legal weight to what our membership says. So to me, the co-op is, you know, like a magnificent experiment. And to me, it's, you know, like teaching leadership and our place in the world. I've learned that, you know, food connects, you know, we're, we're getting food from, you know, different islands and supporting the island with the food that we buy in the co-op. And they tell us about how, oh, we don't have oranges because of the weather in California or something, this storm, you know, like there's all these connections and we don't fully understand our place in all of it, you know, coming from the society that we come from. But, you know, I have learned so much just from being at the co-op about leadership. It took me a while to decide to get on the board. You know, people said you should get on the board. I don't know, you know, what does that mean? You know, so mm. and now I won't get off, but I think this is my last year, my my last term. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I I really I'm really struck right now. You know, one of the <clears throat> it shouldn't be a hot topic, but one of the hot topics in our world right now is this idea of pronouns, right? And I'm sitting here in this recording session, realizing how powerful they are because. Imani, you've said several times in our conversation, it's not you, 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 it's I, you know, in terms of these governing bodies, in terms of agency within the co-op and within this magnificent experiment that that you've embarked upon, that, that we've embarked upon. And just it's, it really is a paradigm shift, right? Because the, the the amount of unlearning you have to do in terms of what power looks like in this country, typically it is, I if I'm not, if I don't have the title, I don't have the power. And it sounds like at the co-op, just because you are a board member, it doesn't then give you carte blanche to then make decisions for the whole. And that that is not a you, 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 that's a I, that's we, that's us, that's our, you know, that's I love right. that. Yes. That's one of the main reasons why I've stayed on the board, because mm. when you listen to people that are running, that don't really understand our culture, I hear them wanting power in a certain way, you know, like when people come to the, to the chair committee, they think, oh, they're up front they have power. Oh, they're the board. They have power. I want power. So I'm staying just to be the one that can keep voting. No, it's the membership. It's not me. This is not, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing here. Mm. Mm. Yes, Joe. So the board directors is, 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 re is required. Our society 
having created corporations, the, the society expects board members to, you know, take responsibility, you know, and, and so the laws are written describing the boards as extremely powerful, at least definitely in New York State, that's the way the, the law is written. And so it's like an incredible act of trust, you know, that that Imani and the other board members bring to the table, you know, because what what they're what they're doing is they're 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 supposed to act in a way like they're not supposed to let the cult do anything illegal, and they're not supposed to let the cult do anything irresponsible. In particular, in particular, financially irresponsible. And so, so every once in a while, a, a, a person will want to get on the board and say, "Well, I'm I'm going to approve everything that the general meeting votes on." Which, which is very close to the truth. It's, it's, there's only one time in the whole history of the co-op that the board didn't approve the advice of the members. The members could vote to express their advice during the general meeting section. And then the board votes whether to accept that advice or not. And the, the thing is that there's an incredible track, re track record. As Imani said, if you're a board member, you could responsibly say, well, I don't have to pledge to vote in favor of the advice, but I do know I've seen the track record of the members that come to the meeting, and there's a fantastic track record, and that the members have 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 a, a great decades worth of good decisions that have been made that they asked the board to to vote for, and then mm. the board has said, "Yeah, you voted for it. We're going to vote for it too," and so, but but it's kind of, sort of like it's the keeper of the flame of of trust, the keeper of the flame of believing in the wisdom of people who came to the meeting, hopefully without any predetermined way that they're going to vote without being willing to be swayed. You know, hopefully people come with an open mind. It's not always true, but, but, but generally, not just generally, but but like high up in the high 90s, the members have great, given great advice to the board in their votes. And the, and the board has been smart enough to realize that. You know, so that, that's great. And, but what we need is responsible people who understand their role on the board and who understand that they would actually vote to prevent the co-op from doing something illegal or that would put us out of business, you know, or, 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 or threaten the cop financially or something like that. So you need great people like Imani, you know, to step forward and say, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to be kind of like the, the, the keeper of the flame, so to speak, you know, and, and, and that believes in the system. And, 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 and by that way, they really are taking a tremendous amount, amount of responsibility really as much or even more than a lot of other boards do. So I think that that's crucial. You know, the, the, the whole thing of agency, it, it, it's like, so look, I'm, I'm part of the management team. You know, I, I'm, I'm, there's five general coordinators. I'm also, one of the general coordinators is also the general manager. I'm also the, so I'm, I'm that person, the general manager. I'm also a general coordinator. And, and the, the general coordinators have been told to have agency, you know, you know, because we have to. And one way we could destroy the democracy is instead of having agency, we could say, gee, 
we need the general meeting to help us decide this. We need the general meeting to help us decide that. And what about that and that and that? And if we brought everything that we needed to decide to the general meeting, we would make the general meeting grind to a halt. We would flood the general meeting with decisions that we should be making. And we should, the reason we know what decisions to make, there's a reason. It's because we understand the culture, we understand the norms, we understand the parameters, we understand and respect the system. And we know that we should not abuse that, you know, and, and, that, and that so you need people in a position who have agency, you need people who respect where that agency was granted from. Mm. And 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 a good way to destroy a democracy or an organization where people have built up trust, the way to go to distrust and the way to go to non-democratic, non-democratic systems is for the people who have agency to not be remembering all the time to decide, is this something that we should decide? Is this within the norms that's expected of us? You know, even though like in my job and in the top management team here at the co-op, we we get to be pretty entrepreneurial on behalf of the co-op, but we need to do that out of respect. So, you know, I was at a general meeting recently and I didn't, I'm usually not going very prepared to defend myself because I don't really expect to be attacked, you know, but we were telling people that we were going to begin a a trial later in the year of, of a home delivery because we got a lot of criticism during COVID that we didn't have home delivery in place. And, we, and when COVID came, we didn't have the wherewithal to get it in place. So then there were people, there was at least one very well-spoken, outspoken member at the meeting recently, at the last general meeting, who was saying, why, why are you people you know, acting as if you could just start home delivery on your own? And, and I have forgotten all about that just before COVID, there was actually a trial home delivery system, not a, really a system, but there was a, a vote by the general meeting to start a trial, a, a pilot project. It was called a pilot project. We're calling it a trial. They're pretty synonymous. You know, so, so like, I'm, well, I'm ready now for the next meeting, you know, so so that when people want to raise that, I'm going to say, well, the fact is we're following, we're following what we knew was what people wanted. And there was even a vote be, just before COVID that, that within a X amount of months, a few months, we had to start a trial with at least eight people who had trouble getting out of the house to buy groceries, you know, to, to start a trial. And so we're going to start a much bigger trial later in the year, and then we're going to bring it back to the meeting to say, to say, here, here's the, here's the results of the trial. Here's what we think. What do you think? Should we continue mm. to do this? But mm. the, the thing is, is that that's our plan. It's a democratic plan. Start a trial, bring it back. And what, what you don't need would have been a management group that said, okay, we're just going to start the home delivery. You know, we'll figure out whether the trial worked or not. We're not going to ask you. We're not going to bring it back. That would be that would be a way of us starting to disrespect the democracy. You see, mm. and so and so you need people in a position of agency to 
respect the general culture where the agency was also authorized to be existent. You know, it's like, and, and, and so that's, that's, and, and when, when you do your agency responsibly, it going back to that member, Lori, like yourself, a member who wasn't coming to the meetings and wasn't writing to the newsletter, but maybe, maybe it filtered through to you. You're, I'm sure you were a busy person. You weren't spending a lot of time thinking about the co-op in your daily life, but, but, uh, but, but maybe you realize that, Hey, this organization has respect for for the average member and the basic processes and and that and that if if we just went ahead and did things and did things and did things eventually we're going to make it people feel like it's not theirs and it's going to break down that connection and it's the connection that someone has to the organization that makes it strong mm-hmm. so during covid in the first few months of covid when we were burning money at over $100,000 a week. Our members in three months voluntarily increased their member owner equity investments. They, they, they increased it by 800,000, you know, and you get nothing in exchange. You don't get, Mm. you don't get interest in that money. You don't get cheaper food. All you do is get the satisfaction that you help the co-op in a time of need. So, Mm. so anyway, so, so it it kind of is a nice circle. It's a circle of if if you if you act in a trustworthy way, if you've used your agency responsibly, if you've respected the organization and respected where your agency came from, and you didn't you didn't grab power. Well, you know, I remember the when you first wrote to us, you used the word shared power, right? So I think the way to share power is to to understand that as a person, your power only comes from the collective. The, the, you know what I mean? That that's where it comes from, and and and, and that, that's it. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come because you're the smartest in the person in the room, and you may be the smartest person in the room. But the fact is, a room full of ten people is smarter than the smartest person in the room. See. And so I, I believe that too, by the way, you know, so, you know, anyway, that, that's what I think. No, not, not anyway. That makes me emotional, Joe. That, <laughs> that literally makes me emotional, you know, that that is, you know, you had this pause before you said the thing about like what it, like what it takes to share power. And it's just like that, that, yeah, it's all of us together that, and and that is such a rare, I experience that so rarely. I think that's why I'm getting emotional in this moment because there's not a lot of places that, you know, there may be places that believe it, but don't always truly move in that way, you know, even for all of the rhetoric. So, so to have, to be present in this conversation with you as a founder and you and Monty as a board member and, and myself as a, as a member, it, 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 it's just such a beautiful and rare experience that I hope becomes less so over time. One of the other things that's living with me right now is this phrase you've been using, Joe, about the keeper of the flame. And and I'm thinking of this because someone lights a flame in the play that I'm directing right now, and she has to light one lamp and then walk across and light another. And the care that it takes to keep a flame alive, it, it, it it's it's the perfect phrase for what you're talking about in terms of honoring agency and honoring consent and honoring the democracy and the trust that has been built amongst the collective and that amount of care 
also is rare in in in, in a lot of governing bodies. And so I I, I wonder how the Park Slope Food Co-op, you know, practices collective care. You've mentioned, you know, things like, you know, you don't see often things out of place at the co-op because that's the care of the members and everyone invested in it, not agreeing to not do something like that. But like as a as a collective, is there a practice at the co-op of, of collective care? How do you care for each other in this very intimate work, honestly? Yes, Imani. Um, I, I... Well, I think that there is definitely collective care. I mean, on the on the uh, on the board, on the chair committee, uh, you know, that we we have it's a work slot for us. During COVID, no one was getting any credit, but because of caring for the membership as a board, we had to meet every week for hours. You know, we might spend two hours. You know, and you know, because we needed to, you know, to 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 help our our co-op to survive and to do what we had to do to to get that voice for the membership, and and it was like you know, like it was almost like a a part-time job for me. You know, some hours, it, some weeks, it was like 20, 25 hours just going towards the co-op and you know and co-op COVID, covid was a you know a, a strange situation so we didn't have to do that but usually on the on the committees that i've been on we're always doing more than what the general requirement for membership is because of you know like understanding of what the membership needs, you know, like that, that our role was important to ensure the process and ensure the, the, the process of governance or whatever would continue in the way that we wanted. So I think that there's a culture, you know, and a lot of people stepped up and, and offered time and, you know, offered their expertise and continue to offer their expertise, their time into making the 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 co-op work. And a and a lot of that work is unseen. I'm sure everything that the coordinators had to go through the during this period and and the various committees, you know, like so I think that, you know, like the people that come to the co-op and really enjoy it and really and really get involved and understand the culture and what we're trying to do really care and go above and beyond and take more time out of their schedules to contribute to making it a, a viable enterprise. Mm. So collective care showing up as literally showing up, like yes. showing up is a way of caring for the whole to help to help even that load, absolutely. Is that a hand, Corinna? When we are ready for my ah, deep listener question. Yes, I yes. I have it, but I can also let Joe go. And yes, then... I saw Joe had a hand as well. Well, I, you know, you said, how do we care? And some of what the COPE does is care for other, other, others in the community. Like there's a soup kitchen that from the, day the cop opened, we were trying to figure out what to responsibly do with fresh food that we couldn't sell, mm. you know, and that was still edible. And how do we get that to? And so we give members work credit for volunteering at a local soup kitchen, you know, mm. to help prepare the food that we gave to the soup kitchen and, and other food too. So 
And we, when we learned that from one of, from our carding company that takes away our garbage in the mid 1980s, I learned that the person said, I, I don't get you. I don't get you. Why, why is it that I pick up all this cardboard from you? And it tells me you're in the fruit and vegetable industry. But everybody else in the fruit and fruit and vegetable industry has this heavy garbage, and your garbage is so light. And if it was heavy, I'd have to charge you a lot more. I said, "Really? You'd have to charge me a lot more?" He he said, "Absolutely." He said, "What are you doing with it? What are you a magician?" And I said, "No, we're not magicians. First, if a food can't be sold, a fruit and vegetable." We say, is it still edible, but no one wants to buy it? We give it to the soup kitchen. And then if it's not good enough for the soup kitchen, we put it in a, in a barrel. And then we bring it to a community garden. And we give people work credit for bringing it to the garden to make new soil. And so, you know, so then a community garden, one of the community gardens a couple of years later was saying to me, you know, we're having trouble with our compost bin. You know, it's not big enough. And we need to redo it. And can we hire a carpenter? I said, no, you can't hire a carpenter. We have car members who are carpenters and we'll, we'll provide the carpenter. But here's what we'll do. Did you know that you're actually saving the co-op money by having a community garden? Because we don't, we, our garbage is lighter. So we're gonna, mm. pay, we're gonna pay for all the materials. And from now on, whenever you need materials that have to do with composting, we're gonna pay. And just this, just this past month, I wrote a $1,400 check for, a, I think, three different, three composters to go to a community garden, you know, and they said, really? And I said, really, that's what we do. We support community gardens composting because so, so it's like, so, so that's, so that's, a, that's, but that's like, that's like being honest about, about how if someone helps you, you help them, obviously you know, and working together with the community. So it's caring for the whole community and caring for each other in the co-op. Look, if someone loses a loved one, we have what we call bereavement leave. If someone is disabled or permanently or just temporarily, we give them leave, you know, if someone, you know, so, so we do that. So I, I don't know if that's what you meant by caring, but we try to oh. make policies that are caring. Yeah. We, Absolutely. We, you we, have we, shown we, me what it means to care for sure. Not yeah. just of the collective, yeah. but beyond. I love that. Yeah. Imani. I just wanted Joe to, to remember to add about that. We also help other co-ops to, to start both in the U.S. and co-ops around the world have come for advice from us, as well as there are certain farms that we support and, you know, they'll ask what kind of food do we need and they'll grow that food. Joe can probably say a lot more about those things than I can, but I, I, I'm, I wanted him to not forget to say oh, that. That's, that's really beautiful. Well, I, I don't have to say it because you said it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a literal lattice of care coming all from that building there at, at in Park Slope. Wow, on Union Street. So I'm definitely thinking about what you described so beautifully, Imani, as the magnificent experiment of the work that you all are doing. And what struck me about it in particular, in thinking about the work we do with Flux, is that these movements, these movements for justice that you've named as a part of the founding and as a part of your own identities, 
live in this co-op practice in a very powerful way. And what seems to me to be radical about it is that this co-op has one thing that it does really well, which is, you know, this distribution of food. <laughs> but it has this other thing that it does really well, which is just as important, which is this changing the way that people see themselves inside of community, allowing them to see themselves, to recognize a truth that's always been there, which is that they are the owners of it, that they can take leadership of it whenever it's important to them to take leadership of it. And they can also move back from the leadership of it. And they can trust that other people can take the leadership of it. And I think that in Flux, we it's taken us a while <laughs> to get better at making that clear. Mm. That, that Flux, yeah, we do make theater. We make good theater. The theater we make is important. But what is just as important is this idea that in an industry that is extremely exploitative and where the power dynamics are really terrifying, <laughs> you can exist in a place where you can take leadership whenever you want to. You can move back from leadership if you need to. And it is truly a collective resource that we contribute to and draw from. And it has taken time to make that clear to new people who come in and join us as what we call creative partners. And one of the things that interests me is how, from a practice perspective, can we make that realization easier? Hmm. That people can really can really say, as both of you have said, this is me. I can take leadership. <laughs> I can have the vision. And I will be supported in that vision. And I feel like the to give an example of what I mean by practice, you know, so one of the things that we do after every production at the closing night is we have cupcakes and champagne ceremony where every single person who worked on the production, we, we are in a circle and each person gets at least one thing <laughs> that is lifted up by another person in the circle that says, wow, when you did that, in the production, it was amazing. You know, like we wouldn't have been able to do this play if you hadn't made that choice. And it it doesn't matter what their role was, you know, maybe their role was actually relatively small or maybe like their role was very large, but every person gets named and it's organic. We don't like plan, you know, like, oh, I'll, I'll say something nice about Jason and Jason will say something nice about Lori. We just are in that circle and we don't leave that circle until that work is done. And from me as a practice perspective, you know, that that shows that leadership is everywhere in this process. And we couldn't have done this production without every single person who provided that kind of leadership. And that is one of the ways that I think that we've been able to make it easier for people to see that that, that it is really true, that they are a leader, whether they've just become a creative partner or been a creative partner for a decade or more. And I'm curious if either of you have like a practice like that, that you think helps people make that realization. The meetings sound like one, the newsletter sounds like one. And I'm wondering if there are any others. I, I think, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, I think the process takes time for people to understand what you're trying to do, what we're trying to do. I think it takes time for people to understand personal empowerment leadership, 
you know, taking dominion over their lives, over what it is that that they want to see, the possibility that 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 I think that there has to be more possibility that lives in all of our lives. That's one of the things that I realize in some of the various things I, I've done that people stop realizing that things are possible. And I think what art does is to allow people to open up. They think they're going to sit back and, and just be entertained. And what art does is to transform. And, and I think that that's what you're doing in the, in the process. And one of the ideas that I have in, in, in some of the events and seminars that I've gone to, one of the things that they've done afterwards is to ask people to simply make a note you know, like they, they give everyone a piece of paper and say, if you, if you choose to, if you feel to, you know, like how did this make a difference in your life? How did this affect you? What, you know, what, what, what contribution, what, what was contributed to you? What do you see in making this a better experience? And, you know, like perhaps if you did that with your shows or in your, in that meeting that you have, and then you could post those things that that people wrote without their names or whatever if they choose to you know so that people know that this is a a transformative work a transformative community and i think in that process of writing i know that I, you asked me to write a a bio you know it took me all night and all day to to get to it but you know i had it, it makes you think about your own life it made me think about my life, think about the things that I've done and 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 what contributed to shared power, you know, and and I I think sometimes in the process of writing, people learn things about themselves. So that might help people to understand, oh, well, I am a leader, or I could do this, or and, and I did do this, and I never thought that I could do it before. Mm. So Yes, Joe. I have to say, I, I'm not sure this is the right time to say this. Imani, I love your bio. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was the exact right time, Joe. That was the exact right time. <laughs> I must say, I this have... Is, they don't want your life story. <laughs> oh, we do, but we do. This is, we really do, you know? Like I, I'm well, you so have thankful. a little piece. This more, <laughs> but that was... No, everything yeah. that I read in your bio, like it, it's so. Those were the things that I helped contribute. Yeah, and I've seen it show up in this conversation here, just in the way that you fiercely defend what the co-op stands for, even when these, you know, hierarchical tendencies want to pop up, and 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 challenges and obstacles come in the way, and COVID arrives, and all, and even in the face of all of that even the face of all of the movements that you all mentioned at the top of the conversation that to to stand in this in this work and believe in it and 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 keep that flame alive i i'm just honored to have spoken with you with you both today about this work and what it takes to do this work and 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 the and the amount of commitment that that it requires but then also encourages you know I just really am super thankful to both of you for joining us here and sharing with us how you all share power at the Park Slope Food Co-op. And I'm wondering if you have, you know, where can our listeners find more 
about your work, found out more about Park Slope Food Co-op? Hmm. Let me see. They, they could go to our website and read our newsletters that go back years on the website. Yes. If they want, if they want to do that, that's okay. That's fine. I don't know. Yeah. Does the Park Slope uh, Food Co-op engage in social media? Yes, we're, but I don't know how to go there. Yes, <laughs> yes, no, we're, 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 we're on Twitter and we're on Instagram. And I did register for Instagram, but I couldn't figure out how to use it. So there you have it, friends. They're on Twitter. <laughs> they're on the Instagram. Look them up. The Park Slope Food Co-op. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Right. It really, really has been lovely speaking with all of you today. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you all for listening to Sharing Power. See you soon.